This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. All right. Good morning, guys. This is Brandon from the Value Hive podcast. We have the privilege of speaking with Turner Novak of Gelt VC. Turner was actually on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best podcast, and we've just had the privilege of chatting with him today. Uh, the fact that we can get some of these guests that Patrick is getting is a testament to uh, the uh, increase in the quality of this podcast, as well as you guys, the listeners. So we can't do this without you guys. So I just wanted to say thanks again. Uh, Turner's a really interesting guy. He's got, he comes from a really um, unique background and what he thinks about and what he writes about is, you know, tech and uh, Snapchat and venture capital and all things kind of on the edge of that innovation frontier. And so today we're going to talk about Snapchat. We're going to talk about TikTok a little bit, his investment background, fantasy venture capital portfolios, and more. We're going to jam pack this into an hour. So Turner, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is exciting. All right. So let's kind of, let's kind of dive right in, starting from zero. So who's Turner Novak? Where are you from? And how did you get um, involved in venture? Uh, so I'm originally from Winnipeg, Manitoba, up in the middle of nowhere in Canada. Uh, moved to Michigan with my parents when I was nine. And uh, the reason I really started to get interested in venture, uh, it's a long story. Uh, but basically, I saw I grew up with a single mom, essentially, she had her own business, she was sort of an artist, she designs custom wedding gowns. And I got interested in business and investing because I just saw her struggle with her business and scaling it. I mean, it's a classic small business thing and she's an artist. You typically don't build massive, super profitable companies as an artist. And I kind of saw her struggle with that. And meanwhile, I also took a lot of programming and art and design classes in high school and was always just interested in tech in general. Uh, And you just kind of think of the intersection of business and investing and technology and how it's changing the world, how it's changing business models. It just kind of drew me to venture capital over time. And growing up, I didn't really know it existed. Didn't know it was a thing. Uh, And so I kind of went to school for accounting and finance to study investing and learn about business. And kind of, I think for me, the biggest aha moment in terms of realizing I wanted to do VC was, you know, I'd realized how important and impactful these big tech companies were but they're valued at a trillion dollars 500 billion dollars and i just kind of said to myself i mean the point of investing is investing early and finding the stuff before other people realize that there's a an opportunity here why couldn't i invest in these companies when they were 10 billion dollars 1 billion or 5 million like just i kept getting sucked early and earlier back and it was also more fun and interesting uh, I kind of done some investing jobs where you make a spreadsheet with a bunch of tabs and then the spreadsheet doesn't even matter at the end of the day. Uh, and a lot of it was more just high level understanding the product and some of the insights that eventually hit the financial statements in two to 10 years that all the 
analysts making spreadsheets will will pick up on. So right. for me, it was, I just want to preempt the spreadsheet. I want to figure out how does this stuff show up in a couple of years. So that's sort of how I really started getting into it. Uh, and it's, I think the way that I did it, I think you're probably going to ask this question next. So I'll, I'll let you ask it. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was, I was, I was just about to say, um, you know, the way, the way you go about this is, is, is nice because you mentioned trying to get there before the spreadsheet or preemptively see what the spreadsheet can't see. And a lot of that you can't learn in traditional finance and accounting because it's very much historical data. It's plugging numbers into a spreadsheet, doing a DCF. How did you, how did you learn that? And what were, what were some of the challenges in shifting that focus away from, hard spreadsheets because there's comfort in spreadsheets, right? There's comfort in doing a five-year DCF and making nice projections. Yep. And there's just this uncomfortability in the unknown and just saying, I have no idea what it's going to look like in 10 years, but I think it's going to be a lot bigger. So how did you, how did you learn that transition and how did you do that? For me, I think studying some of the big tech companies and realizing the things that they were doing right from sort of, a, if you talk to tech and venture capitalists, they call it from a, like a product perspective. They talk about product all the time. And the way I think about product is how does what the business is doing, the function of how the company generates revenue or acquires customers, how that converts and becomes cash flow over time. I mean, all businesses are eventually valued on cash flow if you click and drag the timeline out far enough. Uh, so, my process for learning and understanding this was just trying to figure out what do, what did these existing companies do to what did they do strategically to eventually come in and generate a lot of cash flow over time right. uh, and i kind of think about it as you know margin of safety sort of more of a value investor thing but i also think about it a lot of you know what's the actual opportunity here and are there some things that could go wrong and I'm still okay from an investment perspective or what's the big things that have to be right? What are the big trends or changes in the world that this investment is based on? Uh, and for venture capital specifically, it's sort of what kind of secrets does the founder or the, the founding team, what's the company build on, built on? Uh, so in the sense of something like TikTok, the and, and I guess right now it's a, it's a massive company. It's not really a startup, but their secret is just, it's entirely built on mobile. doesn't have any sort of legacy design debt from desktop. And the whole product is built around no follower graph, which is not how traditional social media has worked. So that's kind of the secret and the insight to understanding that. And you could probably make a DCF and figure out TikTok's undervalued. And you probably should if you're in, like when you're investing in the public markets, it's always good to understand all the metrics and the numbers, but there's a lot of really high level sort of, is this company doing something that strategically is giving them so much power and advantage over the rest of the market, over their customers, their suppliers, their, anyone who's interacting with the business, are they accumulating more value over time because of a certain strategy or, or, decision that they've made and how they operate. Uh, so, and I think there's just tons of examples like that in the public market. So sort of one of my strategies as a VC for, there's a lot of people who put out content of how to do startup stuff. And there's a lot out there, yeah. how, you know, how to get your first customers, how to hire people, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a little bit less content around 
you know, here's a hundred billion dollar business. Here's what they did. And here's what worked. I think founders that are really out to build a publicly traded big company that impacts the world in a big way. Those are the people I want to invest in. And I'm writing content that's uh, and trying to put that stuff out there. And I'm thinking about how do they do that? <laughs> so I think yeah. it kind of helps attract people who think in similar ways. You know, those are the people I want to work with people who want to go and build impactful businesses that change the world in a positive way. And uh, I think that's one of the best ways I've found so far to, to attract them. You've been, work with them. you've been, you've been successful in venture capital so far, but obviously success isn't this linear path, whether it's, whether it's companies or whether it's individuals. So can you describe an early failure? I mean, I know people love talking about their failures within the first five minutes of a podcast, but can you describe an early failure you had on your way to becoming a VC investor or in that early part of being a VC investor that really challenged your belief in yourself? Because I know that that's what a lot of people have faced, whether it's private or public markets, where they have that first big loss and then they question you know, can I even do this? Do I have what it takes? How did you combat that? Uh, I think first off, I would not say that I have seen a lot of success as a VC. It's, it's probably the weirdest asset class where you really actually don't know if you're good, like tr if you're truly returning money to your investors for at a minimum five years and probably longer than that. So, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe if you wanted to say, you know, Turner has been doing this for officially 12 months and compared to other people that are 12 months, maybe you could say I'm doing a good job, but yeah, it's definitely not a, it's not done yet. It's like the very first inning. It's like the first, first pitch of the first inning still. Uh, so I think probably the biggest failure that I had, uh, specifically in VC was, I think it's really, related to kind of getting in in the interview process. So I think, I think my first failure was not understanding how to talk about my strengths and why I would be a good VC. I just kind of assumed I was going to be good at it and right. I was just going to get hired by someone. <laughs> and that's sort of when I started to realize, man, I have to somehow prove to these people that don't know me, this random kid really living in Grand Rapids, Michigan, like the 60th largest city in the US, probably the third best city in the state of Michigan to try to be a VC in, <laughs> that he would be a good investor, that I would be a good VC. Uh, so, I mean, I kind of just started writing and sharing my thoughts online. I put together sort of a fantasy VC portfolio. So it's kind of like if you're investing in the public markets, it's like a paper trading simulated account or I kind of describe it as fantasy football combined with investing. You pick like a dream team of startups and founders. And I wrote a one page investment memo on each one and just kind of put it out there. And that's kind of how I got past that first hurdle of nobody was taking me seriously. Like people mm -hmm. were like, dude, you work at an endowment. Like you're an asset allocator. Why would you understand how startups work or be a good in investor? And to, in defending that, I mean, I'm probably... I would have probably thought the same thing if I, if somebody was reaching out to me. Uh, so what I, what I really did to get around that was I just pretended I was a VC. I just started doing the job, talking to founders. I reach out to people, try to help people raise money, hire. Um, so combined with my fantasy portfolio, which kind of, I think I ended up fantasy investing in 25 companies. Uh, there's a bunch of them that kind of raised more money, uh, which in venture land, 
raising more money at a higher valuation is sort of the early track record that you build because you don't mm. return any capital to your investors until there's an exit event. And that's usually, I think on average, six or seven years. And typically for an IPO where it's actually a successful exit, probably closer to nine, 10, 11, 12. Yeah. So uh, that's sort of the strategy that I use. I'm trying to think, of, I feel like there's another direction I was going with this. And I can't quite can't quite pin pin it well, down me, right now. Yeah. I mean, one question, one question I have is just this, this uh, lag between the decisions you make and then the results that actually spring forth from those decisions. And in private markets, it's, you know, that, that, that lag is even longer than in public markets um, just because of the illiquidity effect. So how do you, yep. how do you manage that uh, in terms of just gauging yourself as a venture capital investor? Because one thing with public markets is you can kind of get a little bit quicker feedback. Um, you know, if your time horizons is three to five years, even then you still have more liquidity to kind of gauge if that thesis is correct over time, but in venture, it's much harder to do. So how do you think about gauging your own performance and then tracking your ability as a venture capital investor while you're waiting for these, you know, bets that are 10 years down the road to pay off? Uh, a lot of ways to answer that question. Uh, the, so the thing I was going to say was one of the things I kind of used was, I think I, before I actually got my first job in VC, I directly or indirectly sort of led to 15 investments being made like by other investors, whether they were angel investors funds. So made introductions or said, Hey, check these guys out. You know, I would invest if I was a VC. Uh, There's 50 investments that were made before I even got my first job in hmm. venture. Um, and that's part of the job is just being able to identify and know who, what company's raising money or being able to convince a founder to take it, take money from you. Uh, Cause VC is a lot different from most other asset classes. It's, especially the public markets, you know, public markets, you open up your Robinhood account or your TD Ameritrade account, whatever you're using, your Bloomberg terminal, and you just place a trade and you can throw a billion dollars into a company if you really want to versus venture. You have to get the founder to talk to you. You have to get yeah. them to give them your wire instructions. So yep. like in order to give the money into like put it into their bank account. Uh, so it's just a little bit different from other asset classes. So a lot of the times people gauge VCs when they're early in their career is just, are you able to invest in companies that other people wanted to invest in? Let's say you, I'm trying to think of a company right now. Let's like, let's say TikTok, it's still privately traded. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's say you're able to say, I invested in ByteDance in the series A or an angel round or something to another VC. They see that and be like, wow, you had the insight whatever the insight was, you had this insight to invest in that company, whether it was the founder or the product or some kind of secret they had, whatever. Uh, also that you were able to convince them to let you in. I mean, maybe it was super competitive and, and every single VC was trying to invest it and you were the one who was able to build trust and the rapport with the founder to actually right. say, Hey, like, I want to work with you. Uh, so that's, that's definitely a, a big difference with how venture works. Uh, and then also the way a lot of people think about, but with venture is, you know, are the companies raising more money at higher valuations? You know, these aren't publicly traded. There's not people constantly bidding on them every day. It's maybe for some companies, it's every 12 months. Sometimes a company might go a couple of years without a bump up in valuation. Right. And it's not because the company's not doing well necessarily. It's just that no one has come in and said, 
I'm going to give you $10 million and the company is going to be valued at 100 million and, and they're giving it a price. Yeah. Um, and it's typically one person or one firm, or potentially there's a, there's a kind of an open bidding auction competitive process where there's a hundred firms competing. And one person says, we think you're valued at hundred million. We think you're valued at 120, 150 million. We think this is valued at a billion. Um, and as a founder, you're trying to think of, okay, I can, I can raise money. I can raise $10 million and my company is valued at a hundred million dollars. I gave, I just gave away 10% of the company, but I have $10 million and my company is now valued at a hundred million. So I probably need to be able to generate a good return for all these investors on that hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. You could take it at a billion. So you raise $10 million at a billion dollar valuation. You give away way less of the company. So as a founder, you still own more and your company's worth 10 times more than if it was valued at a hundred million. But then you have to say, okay, I actually need to make a company that's worth a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah. Then there's all that external pressure. Yeah. It's like, if I go and raise from somebody else, another VC, or if I go public, will the public markets think that my company's raised or is worth a billion dollars. It's probably, if, if you're talking to people about a valuation of a hundred and then a hundred million and you bump up to a billion, probably a bit of a disconnect there. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of the things. So talking about one of my failures, I, I really didn't do a good job talking about what I think I would be good at as a VC and then why I yeah. think I'd be a good VC. And I think it's basically, I think I uniquely understand both sort of the early product stuff and then also the late stage investing. I mean, I can have a call with a founder who's hasn't launched their company yet and talk about how they're thinking through their product. Then also literally 30 minutes later, jump on a call with a PM at a hedge fund and tell them what I think about a publicly traded company, how I'm thinking about it, how I'm thinking about the space. Uh, and I'm not at this point yet, but hopefully be able to say, hey, one of my portfolio companies is actually pretty interesting. You should take a look at it. Uh, so I think that's kind of how I'm uniquely positioned as an investor. And that's slowly what I learned how to do over time. Uh, you know, I don't live in Silicon Valley, live in Michigan. So I think it helps me have a different perspective than maybe some other VCs, but it also hurt me in the beginning because I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. And I, I still don't know if I know what I'm doing. I'm still figuring <laughs> it out. I, I mean, who's not though? So. Right. Exactly. One of the, one of the, one of the things I'm interested about is you say, um, founders can either accept an offer like a price of, you know, hundred million dollars for their company and they give away 10% ownership or they can have the company valued at a billion dollars, but then there's this external pressure that they actually now have to deliver on this $1 billion promise that their company's priced in. Is there a sweet spot that you've noticed over time where it's a mixture of giving away ownership, but then not presenting this company as something that's not basically not over promising on price, but then still not giving away equity where, you know, a company can be priced at a reasonable amount, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's definitely an art. It's not a science. I think a lot of it comes down to what the founder's comfortable with. Some founders like generating a lot of hype and sort of FOMO, fear missing out for Mm -hmm. what they're doing. And that's generally how you get those higher valuations. Like, hey, we don't have a product yet, or we we literally don't have any paying customers, but a couple things that we're doing, people think our company should be valued at a hundred million dollars. Yeah. When if they weren't doing some, maybe some of those hype FOMO things, the company's only worth like 5 million, you, you know, at the end of the day. So, yeah. but a lot of that for a VC, the reason you're thinking that it's worth a hundred million is maybe some of that hype is actually real. And some of that 
uh, swagger that the founder has or ability mm -hmm. to pitch you and tell their story, maybe that can converts to being able to get customers and get users on your product, generate revenue, eventually generate cash flow. Uh, so it's all, it's all, it's an art. I think the science behind it is just, you need to make sure you invest your fund. If you're a investor that has a you know institutional fund, you need to make sure the math lines up on your fund. Right. Uh, so that's probably the science, but there's a lot of art to picking investments and there's countless stories of companies where uh, Uber is a great example. When Uber went public, literally every VC that's in anyone posted emails like, Oh, I, I passed on Uber or I didn't go to the meeting <laughs> yep. or, or I did like, here's the email where I said, yes, that happens a lot. If you kind of follow uh, VC social media, VC Twitter, VC LinkedIn, you know, they talk about their conversations with founders in the early days, like why they said yes and why they said no. And it gets, it drives some people crazy because it's kind of entertaining and a annoying and, kind of humorous way but it's yeah. also i mean someone will see that and be like dang this guy invested in uber and you know he's you know he's a best investor of all time i want him to invest in my company yeah uh, so it kind of explains how all these actors kind of fit in together if you're not super familiar with how the asset class works uh, and so uh yeah that's that's kind of how i think about all the combination of art and science and it's it it, it really all sort of depends on the founder I mean, and what the founder wants to do with their company, how they want to build it. There's different ways. Some people are under the radar. Some people are very public. Uh, certain styles can work differently for recruiting. If everybody knows about your company, probably a little bit easier to attract talent. Also, if you're very mysterious and you have some intrigue, people might also be attracted to that. So it, it all depends on the context, the, probably the industry you're playing in. Uh, what type of team you're trying to build, what type of company, personality of the founder. Uh, I think I generally shy away from the hype. Uh, that's just my style, mm -hmm. uh, but everybody's different. And there's, there's countless lists. Uh, you know, you go down the, the top, I don't know, the Midas list is something that comes out that profiles the top VCs. They all have different strategies and they all work. Uh, I think ultimately it's being able to, at the end of the day, it's figuring out, is this a, can you invest in publicly traded companies when they're just a startup? You know, there are a couple of people, that's this, that's the skill set, And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Yeah. One of, one of the things when you mentioned this, this hype, um, or the CEO, that's, you know, this, this, this eccentric leader, I thought of uh, a risk and maybe, maybe I'm off base here. Maybe, maybe I'm naive, but this idea of, you know, it's at that point, it's a jockey bet. And then you bring in that risk of the key man risk, where if that jockey leaves and let's say he's the hype man, um, think of Tesla and Elon Musk, right? Where yeah. if Elon Musk leaves, what's, you know, what, what value does Tesla have beyond Elon's promises and beyond his hope for the future? Do you ever, do you ever struggle with that? And maybe, maybe that's almost like a subconscious reason why you avoid that hyped up scenario because it's a, uh, because then at that point you're betting on the jockey and who knows if that jockey is going to be there regardless of how good the product or the underlying product is. I think the way that venture capital works, you kind of have to bet on the jockeys. So that's just an inherent risk that's mm -hmm. embedded in everything. I mean, a lot of VCs say they invest in the founder and they invest in the team. Uh, people have different styles. There's some people that are kind of team and founder first, and then there's some people that are market first or industry first. Uh, so the way that kind of works is if you're team first, you're, you basically just say, oh, you know, 
Brand is great. I don't care what he does. He's going to be successful and he'll figure it out. Or like those right. four, those four people on that team, you know, they're like that co-founder, like she's just so smart and she's just, you know, she's such a, so great at convincing people to, to buy into what she's building. She's great with customers. Uh, meanwhile, there's some people that say, yeah, that's cool. But the market that you're working in is really, really hard. Like building yeah. an automaker from scratch, <laughs> extremely intense, like extremely competitive, super high capital intensity. There's barriers to entry. The, the production life cycle of building a car is like five to 10 years. You have to be insane to do that. Uh, so Elon specifically, I mean, and, and sort of the founder bet in general, it's like reducing your cost of capital. So if Ford, like imagine if Elon was, or if Ford had a CEO like Elon that could just go out and say, hey, here's what we're doing. We're also raising a billion dollars just if anybody wants to invest. And right. Ford just raises a billion dollars. I don't know <laughs> that, like that's sort of the competitive advantage that Tesla has as being a founder. And I don't know if that's necessarily a competitive advantage, but being a founder led company that can have a super low cost of capital. I mean, you, I mean, I don't think Tesla would have a chance against any of these other automakers if they could also do exactly what Tesla does. So that's kind of the advantage of being a, a founder led startup where you're competing against, let's say there's a big incumbent, hundred billion dollar company this founder comes in and convinces people that he's going to unseat the rest of the industry and, yeah. and become a massive business one day. And, or maybe there's a point where, uh, you know, there's questions of that not happening and that's where a company can kind of fall apart over time and they can't raise more money. Um, but you really do when you think of it, of it sort of as, risks, cost of capital, sort of the more traditional investing terms. And you kind of give those sort of like a story and a face to it. It's ba that's basically what it is. It's you're making a bet on a founder who can reduce your cost of capital uh, and kind of go in and, and use their vision to convince a bunch of people to help them build something that disrupts the rest of the market. Right. Uh, so it's, yeah, it, it's a huge risk for sure. I mean, Elon leaves Tesla, it's not worth, you know, $300 billion. I don't yeah. even know what it's trading at today. I it's, honestly, who knows? I, I, I watch it, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, he's like the, the Kim Kardashian of, of tech, you know, he yep. always has the attention on him and that's same with the Kardashians. They have a couple different, very large businesses that are based entirely on their personality. Yeah. They reduce the cost of capital or they've reduced their marketing expenses because they can, make an Instagram stories post and generate a couple million dollars in cash. Um, that's, that's partially what it is for, for founders too, with startups, you know, you just, you have somebody who can go and sell, sell the product um, or somebody who's really s savvy with how she thinks about building a product and it convinces customers to, to sign up. So. I love it. I want to, I want to make the second half of our conversation dedicated to your fantasy VC portfolios and then shifting from fantasy to the real world. And I want to start with the first two fantasy VC companies that you highlighted in your process, which was Lambda School and then Play VS. 
And the way I want to go about this next part is just walk us through uh, soup to nuts. You know, a how you found these ideas because you say you only used public data when you were when you were going yeah. through this. So talk to us about how you found them, and then that soup to nuts investment process where you said, okay, you know, how do I value the user base? How do I value the addressable market? What's the growth look like? Take us through Turner's process from finding a company to developing a thesis. Okay. So, so with Lambda School, the way I found it was the founder is very active on Twitter. Uh, if you're in sort of the tech community on Twitter, you'll, you'll see what he's doing. And I, I kind of kept seeing it. And I was like, that's super interesting. You're basically taking a lot of the issues with traditional education and flipping the incentives on their head. Uh, if you're not familiar with Lambda School, it's sort of a live and interactive online school that teaches software engineering design and data science, I, they may have launched or rolled back some of those programs. But basically students don't pay any tuition until they're hired and making at least 50,000. And that number actually might be a little bit different now. They might have changed that. But making at least 50,000 in the field they studied. Uh, and then they don't, and then they pay about 70%, maybe it's 20% of their income for two years once they get that job and it's capped at $30,000. Uh, so they kind of, they found a for-profit model that basically flips this, the incentives of the traditional education industry where the classic education model, at least what we're using now, that the system is basically you take out a loan for 30,000 and then you go to school and you might not get a job, but you still have to pay it back. Lambda right. basically said, we're gonna take on all that risk and we're gonna guarantee that you get a job, otherwise you don't have to pay us back. Um, so just the incentives of the product they created was the complete opposite of the incumbent education system. Um, and it's probably more fair to compare what Lambda School did to something like a trade school. Um, it's really not the same as going to a Harvard or Stanford. Um, and there's probably ways to make similar businesses related to competing against a Stanford or Harvard. Uh, but Lambda was really like, instead of going to a, a coding, other, a different coding bootcamp, you come to ours, we'll basically guarantee you get a job. Um, and what I noticed with Lambda was they were just starting to get people placed in companies that would probably hire more Lambda graduates. So just like with traditional education, if you went to Harvard or went to, in my case, Grand Valley State University, <laughs> you, you will probably be a little bit more inclined to hire other people that are like you. And this is a problem with how we work as a society is you and it's also a good thing. We identify, it's kind of an evolutionary thing. We identify with people that are similar to us. Right. Uh, so I kind of noticed that at, that at Lambda, a lot of, they, they were starting to get people placed at really big tech companies. And I thought, this kind of seems like they're starting to create a pipeline in all these schools. They'll be able to say, almost like a marketplace of hiring where what we essentially do is we bring in students. We say that we guarantee that they'll get a job and that guaranteed job is probably at a place like Google, Netflix, Apple, probably aspirational companies that a lot of these people want to work in. Yeah. Um, and sort of my whole thesis as an investor, especially on the venture side, is just things that make the world a better place. Uh, so, and things I could be proud to tell my kids I invested in. Hmm. So with Lambda, a lot of the students and not, not every single students, but they have a lot of stories of somebody who worked at, you know, they were stocking shelves at Walmart and then they were maybe working a second job too. And they're taking care of their family. And it's just, they, they probably could have been a software engineer, just the way that the cards they were dealt in life just didn't stack up to that. 
Um, and Lambda made it possible for them to go from making minimum wage to suddenly making $80,000 a year. And yeah. it wasn't like these people were living in San Francisco or New York making $80,000 a year, which is the equivalent of minimum wage there. They're right. living in South Dakota, Nebraska, Alabama. So yeah. that's actually a really falling good out amount of kings. money. Yeah, kings and queens yeah, falling yeah. out in Dakota. Yeah, so essentially the thesis was they de-risked education. Uh, and that was kind of how I went into it, kind of how I found it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the second one, play versus that one is essentially NCAA for esports. Uh, so I grew up playing way too many video games. I went to <laughs> a couple different Halo Three tournaments. I I won my my school's Halo Three tournament freshman year at, okay. at college. Is that uh, on your so resume? Because that, that needs to be on your resume. That's not <laughs> on my resume. It was, and it wasn't like an official tournament. It was just a. Uh, fraternity that was recruiting put it on and one of my friends was like dude you have to go to this it's a halo <laughs> tournament so i went to it and i just met a random kid there and it was kind of one of those things when we, when we were warming up when everybody was like practicing i was like okay this is probably the other really good person here and we just teamed up and you know it was kind of like really quick recruiting you know i could tell that he was the guy i wanted to go with mm-hmm. and like, i don't even think we, like we, we pretty much swept the floor with with the tournament so anyways <laughs> i so what play versus is doing is saying esports is a legitimate thing that a lot of people are doing and playing and in a lot of cases to be good at video games you have to do a, a lot of the similar things you have to do to be good at other things in life practice have commitment um in a lot of games it essentially comes down to teamwork so everybody gets to a certain point when they can point their controller or their mouse to a certain spot on the screen and do a different action what they can't do is strategically move with other players that they're working with to just, just kind of strategically overcome everybody else who can also do those same actions the same way as you. Uh, so for me, I was like, man, I told, I probably could have gotten a, a scholarship to play Halo in, in, in college, which would have been awesome because we didn't really have a lot of money coming, uh, growing up and I had to take out a lot of student loans. So I was like, man, mm-hmm. this, this product is pretty cool. It's basically a pipeline for finding kids who are good at playing video games and getting them getting them noticed and getting them scholarships. And it was a couple of years ago when I sort of made this fantasy investment, a couple of schools, I think there was about 200 schools that had sort of offered esports scholarships in some capacity, yeah. uh, but there really wasn't a recruiting sort of pipeline to do that. So what they did was it's sort of like the NCAA for college and high school esports. And in a way, it's sort of like they're aggregating the demand of every single kid in the country who's interested in esports, which that's basically the demographic is, is young people. There's no, right. and maybe there's a couple, but on average, you know, there's not a 60 year old sitting around watching people play video games all day. Uh, and for a lot of kids, you know, they see watching video games the same as, as somebody else might see watching someone play football or, or soccer or basketball. Yeah. Uh, so they were basically capturing all this attention. And I thought, you know, not only is there a really good opportunity to build a business around this recruiting pipeline, but I mean, is there a way to create an actual league like the NCAA where you make a lot of money and build a big business around monetizing people playing esports and watching esports. Right. Uh, and with esports, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of different things going on that make it an attractive or unattractive spot to invest. Um, and I kind of felt this got around a lot of the issues of, not having direct control of the game, uh, 
in terms of if you're investing in a team and you're kind of at the whims of the publishers mm-hmm. um, with the publishers, you're worried about constantly getting a hit. Um, there's some games that have lasted a very long time, like league of legends, counter-strike. Um, there's also some like for me, like halo, nobody plays halo anymore, but it was huge for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, so I kind of thought this is something that you're basically working with every publisher and every player. Um, it will kind of span and, and last for a very long time. Uh, so that was kind of the thesis with those two. Um, and, and with, with the fantasy portfolio, I didn't have data on how any of these companies were doing. It was basically looking at the website, scouring Reddit and Google for anybody talking about or complaining about the product, uh, listening to, in, in the case of both Lambda School and Play Versus, the founders had done uh, maybe one or multiple podcast or YouTube interviews. So you could kind of simulate you know, a call with the founder trying to do due diligence. You can't ask mm-hmm. the questions, but I think in those two specifically, the interviewers did ask pretty good questions that were similar to what I would have asked. Uh, so that was overall my process. You know, it wasn't perfect. Uh, obviously, actually angel investing and truly being able to like, talk to the founders and get in and, you know, really do real due diligence is probably better. But that was kind of how I simulated it uh, yeah. when I was first kind of trying to make the jump in. So then how did you think about the valuation, right? So Oswald Domodorin always talks about attaching numbers to narratives. And what I love about yeah. your process is that you create these amazing narratives backed by these long-term tailwinds that A, are beneficial for the most part to you know kind of society and the broad landscape out there. But B, it's just stuff that you're passionate about. And that's, that's the other thing that I hope people realize is that you do your best work when you're most passionate about what you're learning. And so that, that aside, how do you think about attaching numbers to some of these narratives, whether it's, um, you know, like ARPU or whether it's total addressable market, were you even thinking in terms of that? Because I don't even know if that data was out there for Lambda School or PlayVS. So how do you, how do you attach those numbers to that narrative? So, yeah. So with them specifically, there was, I had no idea what the valuations were, you know, and I, I was able to find out later um, they were a little bit on the higher side, uh, but when I was doing, when I was putting this together, I wasn't saying, you know, okay, hopefully this company exits for $200 million and I get a, you know, 10 times or five times return on my investment. I was basically saying, I think all these could be billion dollar publicly traded companies at some point in time. And that's ultimately how I think about being an investor. I'm, and as a VC, you're basically just trying to hit home runs with every investment and it works because a lot of them fail. Uh, but just venture in general, the returns are driven by, you know, 5% of the portfolio, 10% of the portfolio, and specifically maybe one or two companies that generate most of those returns from the 5 yeah. or 10% that generated most of them. So with all these, I kind of thought, you know, and, and I also wasn't specifically saying, here's what the returns are I'm targeting. It's basically just, here's just how I think about things and being able to show mm-hmm. a track record of how I thought. Yeah. Um, so in terms of how I did that, um, it was, wasn't really much respect to valuation. I just tried to invest early. I kind of thought, you know, this company's only raised a C around the highest evaluation could be was 20, 25 million. They, some of them ended up being a lot lower than that. Uh, obviously you have to think differently when you're investing in a $5 billion company. It's much less about the product and the idea. You need some real numbers there. You need some real math. Mm-hmm. Uh, so typically in terms of, thinking about ARPU, it's typically, I think in terms of a social product, I just kind of think how much time are people spending using the product and then how many 
depending on how you're making money, if it's advertising, how many ads could I potentially show in that span of the time they're using it? And then how much could I charge for those ads? Right. You can also think too, in terms of a subscription product, you know, how many people are paying for it or how many free users, users can I convert to actually start paying? Is there room to increase the subscription? Uh, you also need to think about defensibility. I mean, could somebody else just, and this is the classic thing with Netflix. It's like, oh, anybody could come out and make a Netflix competitor. And I think people are trying to realize Netflix is pretty much here to stay. Like people aren't canceling their Netflix accounts, you know, kind of like, a TV network 2.0, like nobody canceled ESPN. You needed ESPN for sports or you needed mm -hmm. ABC because they constantly put out good Disney-ish ABC type content. So you're never yep. going to get rid of your ABC channel. Uh, so that's kind of how I think about that way on the, you know, kind of the, what's the revenue potential. Um, and then I think in general, you kind of, another thing I really think about a lot is, can I get free revenue and free distribution? So with, I kind of think uh, I think distribution is extremely important, which is distribution is just how you how many customers you have using your product or users you have using your product. Um, so typically, when you're a startup, you're competing against somebody who has a hundred million users or tens of thousands of paying customers. How do you also get that? And how do you compete against somebody who can just copy exact like your exact product and just you know, say, oh, we're also offering this, by the way, 10,000 customers just pay us to also get this. And we'll, I know there's a startup that's doing it, but we'll just give you a better deal. And for the incumbent, that maybe that new product was, you know, pretty easy to roll out. Maybe it, the feature wasn't very good, but people already have a relationship. Uh, so I kind of think of how do you create a product that people need and it's tough to fit into what these competitors and these existing billion dollar, $100, billion incumbents are doing and then use that really good product to acquire customers, build up distribution and get to a point where you're, where you're now an incumbent, where you're yeah. the one with more distribution. And by the way, your product's also really good. So it's not, and typically when people talk about product, it's some sort of feeling that, or interaction with the customer, relationship with the customer, um, how a customer feels when they use it. Uh, so I think a classic example no one's figured out yet with sort of this product distribution battle is Comcast and the ISPs. Hmm. I mean, you look at Comcast's customer uh, NPS scores. I mean, they're absolutely <laughs> terrible. Nobody likes working with Comcast. Comcast but rants on Twitter have. are some of the funniest posts you'll ever read in your life. They're they're pretty entertaining. And reading like the reviews on online, like any like <laughs> go on Reddit, people complaining. So, anyways, they have insane distribution. It's super expensive to build out what they've done so sort of the product side is can we somehow give a better experience maybe make it 10 times easier more exciting 10 times cheaper potentially all three of those things uh, and then can we do it for much cheaper than what the incumbents are doing so with isps it's probably some type, type of like satellite internet or you know beaming the connection out over a neighborhood without having to build in landlines that you know comcast has paid I don't even know the number, hundreds of billions of dollars to create mm -hmm. over the last century. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the ongoing battle of how do you really figure out, figure out as a startup, where's your place? And then as an investor, think if there's an opportunity. Love it. I love it. Now let's transition from the fantasy to the real world with what you do at Gelt VC. And um, 
before before we dive into some of your investments, I want to talk about um, the types of industries that you like to invest in. So for those that don't know Gelt, uh, there's the Twitter account that if you can follow, you just, the only tweets are about the industries they invest in or they like to invest in. So there's food, uh, remote work, fintech, e-commerce, childcare, and then vertical SaaS. And so what I want to talk about is this childcare because I thought that was really interesting from a from a VC perspective. I haven't heard that talked about. But walk us through from the fantasy to the real world. What did that transition look like? How did you kind of get that portfolio together where you went from, you know, I hate to use the term like amateur VC to then, you know, real real world VC. You've got the fund, you've got yeah. the portfolio. Talk to us about that. Uh, so my strategy for actually becoming a real VC, once I had done the fantasy stuff, I, so initially my, my very first investment I made was someone I had talked to before and he really wanted me to invest in his company, but I just couldn't, uh, based on where I was working before I started at, at Gelt, just the thesis didn't really match. It was a different part of it. It was in, they were in Latin America, not in the U S. Uh, and I had talked to him, I said, Hey, I'm finally in VC. I, you know, I want to invest. Uh, like I can finally write you a check. Um, so that was pretty easy. <laughs> I'd already been talking to him and was super impressed with what he was doing. So very easy to do that. Uh, and then in terms of sort of how I, I had a couple where I think I invested in three of the companies, four of the companies that were in my fantasy portfolios. Uh, in most cases, I mean, the founders had seen my fantasy portfolios. That was one of the really interesting things about that whole process was I met a lot of the founders or they at least knew about me. And when I would reach out, they'd say like, it was pretty simple of like, Oh yeah, we'd love to have you invest. Like we saw that thing you made two years ago. That was awesome. Like you're yeah. like, we love it. We just want you to invest. Like it wasn't even uh, in a couple cases, they weren't even actually raising around. They, they were just like, Oh yeah, like we'll have you invest. Like we'll figure something out. Uh, so, and, and specifically the, so the childcare thesis, that I had, uh, it kind of fits into specifically what I invested in. And it kind of fits into a couple of those different trends, like verticalized software for one industry. Uh, childcare in general is very tough. There's a lot of regulations. Uh, there's existing big incumbents. The product's maybe not very good. It's really expensive for parents. Uh, in a lot of cases, you when you're paying for childcare, it's kind of like a second rent or mortgage payment. Yeah. Uh, it's just really unaffordable. Uh, and by the way, the people working at a lot of these childcare centers don't make very much money. They're kind of making, you know, 10 bucks an hour, maybe 15 bucks an hour, yeah. sometimes even less than that. Uh, and a lot of these people are really, they really care about kids. Uh, they really love kids. Like that's why they're working in a childcare center. Uh, but a lot of things that come with working in a childcare center, you've got a 20 to one kid to teacher ratio or 12 mm -hmm. to one, something really high. Um, so one of the companies I invested in was sort of a marketplace for in-home childcare. Uh, so in-home childcare specifically, uh, there's a lot lower ratio between the kids and the teachers typically. Um, that's because the cost structure is totally different of running an in-home childcare. You know, you can double dip with your, your rent or your mortgage payment for your personal residence and your house. Uh, you typically have in, in general, you make more as a teacher. Uh, you, you're probably making about two to three times more. Uh, so it's probably more worth your while, but you're probably not very good at running a business. I think sort of if you were to do a Venn diagram of 
people who you'd want watching your kids for 50 hours a week. And then people who are, you know, able to operate a business very effectively. Uh, the, the Venn diagram probably doesn't overlap a whole lot. So if mm-hmm. you can create software to just help people run their business better, uh, that's obviously an interesting product to be trying to sell. Uh, so, and one of the really interesting things that's happened over the last couple months is sort of a lot of different government agencies and research centers are saying, we think we're going to lose about half the supply of childcare due to all these different changes that the world is going through right now right, due to exactly. COVID. Yeah. Uh, so you kind of think if you just think about it as a supply and demand game, you reduce the supply, pricing is going to go up and it's going to make it even more difficult for parents. Uh, so what this company does, it's called WeCare. Um, they basically help bring more supply into the marketplace. It's basically, it's, some of these are sort of existing in-home daycares that are sort of offline per se. You know, they, they maybe don't have a good web presence or it's somebody who wants to launch an in-home daycare and launch a new supply. So they're making it easier for people to find care for their kids. Usually they're about 30 to 40% cheaper than going to a big center. And then the sort of the quality of care that they're getting is, is going to be better than on average than what you're getting in a big center. Uh, and then when you think about sort of the changes we've had going on, I'm a parent, I have a daughter and another daughter on the way. I kind of think of, do I want to be sending my kid to this, you know, massive center with a bunch of other kids probably going i mean they're already disease centers where everyone's getting sick it's just even riskier now Um, so sort of the industry of in-home daycare if you can make it work if you can build a business that's capital efficient and that's everything's been productized and you can scale quickly uh there's actually a really big opportunity right now even more than there was six you know six months ago seven months ago when i invested Mm -hmm. um so there's you know it's it's a what a 57 billion dollar market just kind of licensed daycare in general. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that kind of happens offline, a lot of stuff that's maybe not captured. Um, there's a lot of government subsidies, which also adds complexities. If you're a small business owner running a daycare in your house, how do you figure out how to accept government subsidies? Uh, so it's it's a really interesting space. I think there's a lot of, a lot of opportunities, but it is tough. Um, but it's a place, and especially right now, I mean, I think that losing half the supply in the US, it's not like that supply that's going away in nice, wealthy neighborhoods where people are probably paying really high tuition. It's typically places with a lot of people who are lower income, there may be minorities, and then also it's a lot of women being affected mm-hmm. who you might not be able to send your kid to to daycare anymore and work and you might have to stay at home or you're adversely affected because you're the one that's typically on average women take the the bearing of all the child caring in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really unfortunate. And for us, I mean, it's exciting to kind of talk about and figure out how can I invest in companies that are helping people who are being marginalized by some of the stuff that's going on in the world. Um, right. So that was kind of my thesis in, in childcare and why I made that investment. Um, it's exciting, super early, uh, but I think it's a really big opportunity. So outside of childcare, when you look out over the next you know, 10, 20 years, what industries get you excited the most? I know you like to invest in places that you are passionate about that you think can actually do a lot of good for the most people. What, what kind of industries are you looking into? What kind of industries? Uh, I'm open to 
really any industry, I'm pretty opportunistic and sort of bottoms up with how I, I do things. You know, there's probably, I have a list of 50 general industries I'm interested in. Uh, but for me, I really look a lot about the initial kind of entry point because uh, every industry you look at that's out there, there's very large businesses in, and I can probably generate good returns for my investors as, as a, as a VC. Uh, but for me, I really look at the initial growth and go to market strategy. Are there a lot of opportunities there? Are there ways for you to get really capital efficient growth? Other platforms you can build on to grow super fast, super quickly, um, and build a big business to challenge some of the incumbents. Uh, so three that I'm really kind of watching right now, there's a, a couple others, but three I'm really interested in is sort of building on like logistics, last mile, hyper-efficient delivery. Um, so what I mean by that is if you look at what Uber, DoorDash, and Postmates have been doing over the last couple of years, they basically create they basically created an API for their delivery network. So what that means is if you're a developer building something, you can copy and paste this code, stick it into your app, and you can use their drivers to deliver things. Right. Uh, so one of the companies I invested in, their uh, software for running local florist shops, if you are a florist and you want to deliver something, you can just have an Uber driver come, pick it up, and deliver it to where you need to go. So I think that's if you kind of think about how USPS, like the post office, if you think of UPS and FedEx, how they work, they need to bring things back to their hubs. That's kind of the DNA of their, their companies. Um, they don't really have this sort of on-demand, last-mile, hyper-efficient delivery networks. Uh, and then Uber specifically is getting into freight. So bringing the same concept into freight and logistics uh, yep. so i think it's going to be able to people are going to be able to build fundamentally different business models on top of these hyper efficient last mile delivery networks i haven't made any investments specifically that's investing on top of these like in the same sense of somebody building an ios app on apple's platform but a couple that tangentially sort of touch it um, and i think it's a really big opportunity over the next 10 years just how logistics are changing uh, two other ones that I'm really watching in terms of just opportunities to build on. I think a lot of people are sleeping on sort of the shift to chat first communication. Mm. So in, yeah. in enterprise specifically, uh, you look at Slack, Slack is, you know, they're not as big as, as Microsoft Teams. Microsoft Teams is kind of the big, you know, every, like they have, I think like Microsoft Office has, 750 million or like a billion users or something insane so mm -hmm. teams will probably get to that point eventually yeah uh, but slack what they've done is they basically let people start building products inside of slack uh, so i actually invested in a product that's sort of flipping the incentives and and making a product that's in my opinion 100 times better than the existing incumbents and the existing other startups by building on top of slack and just mm. making things a lot quicker to do um, and also making things uh, more inclusive, including more people in the company, which evidently increases the amount of revenue you can generate. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's going to be businesses, whether it's developer tools, HR tools that, you know, et cetera, any kind of business product where instead of accessing it, however you might do it in a browser, there's going to be opportunities to build right in chat. Uh, and, and it's, I like it because it's a distribution channel that uh, you can kind of, use for growth really quickly uh you know there's I, 
there's a couple different areas that it might work better for, but I just like the general concept of building on that platform. And then the other one uh, would be building on the consumer side in chat. So if you follow WeChat in China, they have a sort of this concept called mini programs, which is basically mini apps that are built within the WeChat app. So mm-hmm. if you're Uber, you, and Uber's not in China, but if you're Uber, you have an app that people can access within WeChat. You don't have to actually download the Uber app. Super lightweight, super quick and efficient. You can still generate revenue and cash flow inside of WeChat. Uh, so Snap recently announced a similar initiative. Yep. Uh, and Snapchat has about 84, I think 87 million users in North America. Uh, similar, uh, it's some like 48, 49 million in Europe. Uh, but in general, Snapchat's user base is about the same size as Instagram. Snapchat also has a developer platform that's been extending itself into other apps. And they also have the Bitmoji keyboard, which gives Snap a backdoor into every other app. And they recently have been announcing partnerships to get that Bitmoji keyboard into even more products. Uh, so the size of Snapchat is almost irrelevant to the opportunity size, especially when you consider Facebook is probably going to copy it. Like, let's be real. They just bought Giphy, which is sort of this key gif keyboard that inserts so if you don't know what a gif is little animated video that lives inside of a messaging product or mm-hmm. a social product favorite form and, of communication by the way <laughs> yeah so it gives them a back door facebook as well a lot of products use giphy mm-hmm. so when i kind of think about the opportunity set of what could what could you build on top of these um, mm-hmm. There's been a couple companies that have done similar things in China. Um, there's a company called Pinduoduo, which was founded in 2015, and it's now a $100 billion company. And they grew very predominantly on WeChat and then also using these mini program things. Yeah. Uh, so I'm like, wow, <laughs> build a $100 billion business in five years. There's going to be an opportunity to do something similar in the US. And also, let's, let's say Snap, Facebook, et cetera, they're all over the world. Uh, so I think that is another platform that people are going to be building on and I'm super interested in. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people think Snap's dead. People don't understand it. Stock price got beaten up. Uh, it's sort of a weird story. Um, so I think it's kind of being overlooked. So as an investor, I'm super interested and I've been following the sort of the bull case of building something like this for a really long time. So I think I'd be really helpful to founders kind of navigating, uh, understanding who to talk to, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So those are the big three that I'm really thinking about right now. Um, there's other general trends just related to how consumers are thinking differently, uh, whether it's Gen Z or millennials or even older folks, just how the world's changing. What are some things that will fundamentally change business models over the next couple, like the next decade or so? Um, it's all exciting. Super fun. Literally spend way too much time thinking about this stuff. Yeah. Well, no, I love, I love, I love the idea of building things off of existing platforms and I know we're getting towards kind of the last, um, you know, the cutoff point here. So we're just going to go to the closing questions after this, but I just, I just want to reiterate this, this idea because there's so many businesses, whether they're building things on top of something like a Salesforce or something like a Slack or, um, you know, or a conglomerate of all these other platforms. And then they're just curating all of that directly to you. So you don't have to go to all these separate platforms. It reminds me of like a MasterCard or a Visa where they kind of laid the rail work for those payment processors. And then everybody hopped on top of those. And then you had billion dollar companies that were being made because of what was laid down by these two incumbent um, companies. And it's just, it's just, it's just such an interesting way of thinking about it. And when you put it in that framework, it allows you to find ideas 
that you otherwise wouldn't because instead of trying to find that incumbent, like instead of trying to find that MasterCard, which is way harder, you're finding that one company that uses MasterCard then to expand their business rapidly. Yeah, and I think when Sequoia was sort of founded back, you know, 40 years ago, their thesis was, what are these structural changes in technology that's going to change how businesses operate? We're going to invest related to these new platforms that are emerging. So you can, as a VC, you can invest in something that takes advantage of existing platforms that other people don't realize yet, or you can invest in new platforms. I mean, I think the, the sweet spot is investing in something that is taking advantage of another platform, but then will yeah. become its own platform yep. uh, because that's a business that just keeps running and you could probably build a trillion dollar business, you know, probably not in the time frame of a venture capital fund. Um, but really when you think over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, and I mean, even Amazon's a over a trillion dollars and it was founded about 25, 26 years ago. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of opportunities, uh, I think, investing on top of and then investing in emerging platforms. Yep. Let's get to our closing questions now. I've got, I've got three for you. Um, the first one is where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, I am pretty active on Twitter. Uh, it's just my name, at Turner Novak. Uh, and I have a Substack blog that I kind of write probably about twice a month. Uh, it's just turnernovak.com. We'll direct you there. Uh, those are probably the two where I'm most most active. Yeah, and if you're not subscribed to Turner's Substack, you're doing it wrong. So definitely go go subscribe. <laughs> the content's amazing. Uh, the second the second question is a little bit more philosophical. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some advice, uh, what would you tell him? Mm, I would probably say just don't worry about what other people think and just have fun and follow what you're interested in. And then also figure out what you are uniquely good at and happy doing and just do that forever. (laughs) That would be the advice. I love it. I love it. And then the final question, which is when I ask every guest, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? One person past or present. Uh, that is a good question. I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. Probably, probably my great grandpa. Oh, okay. I just never, I, I never really got to know him very well because he died when I was really young. But mm-hmm. apparently, he was kind of just like really mini real estate mogul up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. <laughs> uh, like I've heard stories about like after he died, like he. He had a lot of real estate. He was slowly selling it off over time. After he died, like they kept finding more that he had like hidden. He's like secret real estate. Like, and it wasn't like he was a. I think he was sort of a slumlord. Like to be totally honest, uh, from, yeah. From what I heard, yeah. Uh, I, I I think he like he just had random houses that he rented out. So I would just be fascinated to just kind of talk to him. I I mean I think he died when I was five or six. So I yeah. just never really got to know him very well. I think that'd be awesome just to kind of learn about him. I'm sure I probably have a lot of similar characteristics and good takeaways I could learn from talking to him. So I'd love, love to, to actually get to know him. Yeah. He could, you, he could, he could end up telling you, Hey, you know, you missed 42 other properties that, that, I, that I've yeah. got. <laughs> awesome. Well, Turner, thanks so much for coming on the show. I know your time is valuable and I appreciate you giving us an hour. Um, I look forward to talking with you more and I know our listeners are going to get a lot of good information out of this talk. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me.